I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. Today, we have a special program for you. It's the recording of a fascinating discussion hosted last week by our East Bay columnist, Otis Taylor. It was part of the Chronicle's Road to Election 2020 virtual event series. Otis led an expert panel and a talk about systemic racism and how it affects so many aspects of our society. And speaking of elections, don't forget about our upcoming podcast series, Chronicled, Who is Kamala Harris, debuting next Monday on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen. You can check out the trailer and subscribe now. And now, here's Otis. I'm Otis Taylor, columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you for tuning in to Road to Election 2020, Race on the Ballot. Tonight, we're going to talk about systemic racism in housing, criminal justice, and income inequality. Systemic racism, like the coronavirus, isn't going to go away, simply going to magically disappear, despite what our president might think. This will be a conversation for people like me, who strive for a better understanding of the housing and banking laws and policies that were enacted and enforced to perpetuate oppression and marginalization. And now I'd like to introduce you to our panelists. First, we have Deborah Gorman, the CEO of Greenlining Institute, an Oakland-based public policy group that works to empower disadvantaged groups. Last month, Greenlining released the Supplier Diversity Card, which highlighted spending with Black suppliers. In 2009, overall spending with Black-owned suppliers dropped nearly 10%. Spending with Black-owned businesses, uh, owned by women, excuse me, dropped almost 37%. Contracting with Asian American and Pacific Islander suppliers remained flat, while Latino-owned businesses declined. About that report, Deborah, you said that returning to business as usual after COVID won't be good for minority-owned businesses. What did you mean by that? Uh, Well, uh, thanks to Otis, and so happy to be here and have this important discussion. And so I look forward to the conversation. But in particular, you know, we issued that supplier diversity report uh, report card as a way to help hold um, large utilities, um, telecoms accountable for the investments that they make in communities of color. So the systemic racism that we're going to talk about, the historical discrimination against racial wealth and the income gap persists. And uh, the small businesses that are contracted have access to economic opportunity that expands their business that ultimately help our communities thrive. So if we go back to uh, where we were before, uh, well, we can't because a lot of business, a lot of small um, minority owned or uh, commu- companies owned by uh, communities of color are going out of business. So we we can't go back. We have to go forward. OK. And next we have Sarah Truhast, the vice president of research at PolicyLink, an advocacy group for racial and economic equality. People who are rent burdened are spending too big of a percentage of their pay and rent one of them, after spending money on necessities like your cell phone, food, and other bills, there isn't much left to put away for a rainy day or, I don't know, a pandemic where you lose your job. Almost half of all renters in the Bay Area, 48%, were rent burdened before the pandemic. 
And that was according to a report card on racial and economic equity released in July. And that's how we started talking, Sarah. Tell us a little bit more about that report card. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great to be here with all of you. Um, really important conversation. The, the report card is the National Equity Atlas, which you all can access. It's at www.nationalequityatlas.org. And it is um, a website that provides data and narrative around equity. And we deeply disaggregate the data. We have 30 indicators. We disaggregate by race, by gender, by nativity, by ancestry, by income. And we believe that this data is really critical to put in the hands of when everyone, but also advocates for equity to help them make the case for the policies that they are advancing. And then also we put out research to really highlight what is happening across the country and what can we do to advance racial equity. And um, we also have a report card for the Bay Area called the Bay Area Equity Atlas. So I'll talk about that a little bit more, but wanted to highlight that. Great. Next, we have Dr. Jason Williams. He's an assistant professor of justice studies at Montclair State University, and he's a criminology expert. The social unrest that we've experienced this year has brought a moment where people from activists to elected officials are talking about defunding the police. I think we should also be talking about reimagining the entire criminal justice system. In one of our first conversations, Jason, we talked about policing, but you told me in an issue that we should be focusing on is the culture of policing. Tell our viewers what you meant by that. Yes. So when you so there's a girth of qualitative research in particular that has looked very deeply at the culture of policing and particularly from the perspectives of officers themselves. And so when we think about this blue wall of silence, if you will, um, through this prism, we see that, yes, you can have all these so-called structural changes um, or administrative changes in the world in policing. But if this cultural change is not uh, affected in any uh, material way, then many of the racial issues that we see out in the field are gonna continue to uh, persist. And another way of, of looking at this issue would be through many of the DOJ reports, the Department of Justice reports that we see, whether it be Ferguson, whether it be Baltimore, you name it, in any big city where the Department of Justice has had to investigate, we see patterns and practice of poor police culture and this is historical. And it's primarily a culture of going out into impoverished communities and mainly communities of color and instituting a particular kind of policing, one that dehumanizes those communities, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Wow. Before we go any further, let me tell you a story. To cope with the pandemic blues that many of us have felt, I've taken two road trips this summer including a jaunt through Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana in the last week of September for my birthday. I fell in love with hot springs this summer. And my friend and I went to uh, Honeyville, Utah, which is a small town, northern part of Utah, uh, to Crystal Hot Springs, well-known well hot springs, um, so we could soak for a little while. The city is 97% white. 
And we felt that when we went to get in the pool. Everyone stopped and looked at us. And the disgust and the disdain could be felt. And we were made to feel that even though we paid our way, drove there, but as people of color, we did not belong. I'm telling you this story because all racists don't hide their faces in hoods or masks for that matter. But racism permeates this country, even to the highest office in the land. Since this country was founded, blackness has been scrutinized and criminalized. Black people were enslaved for, say, 250 years. And after emancipation, the Jim Crow laws enacted were set up to enforce segregation, and they ruled the country for a century until crumbling under the weight of the civil rights movement. White people have been socialized to abhor and fear blackness and to view racism as an individual prejudice and not as a systemic construct. This is why people took to the streets after George Floyd's death. This is why people of all races and ethnicities are chanting Black Lives Matter. But our president will say that no one, no one has done more for Black people than him since Abraham Lincoln. And Jason, when he says that, what is your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, lather for one, um, but also bewilderment, you know, because there's no way in which to really um, confirm that. I mean, all of his policies are filled uh, with anti-Blackness, all of them. I mean, even the policies that are um, said to be helpful, you know, to to Black folks, Um, even the criminal justice policies, you know, Um, you know, while you're claiming to be letting Black folks out, you're also constructing other policies, particularly in in, uh, other arenas, other institutions that are equally punitive to the very policies you claim to be unraveling. Um, We can be, we can look at COVID, right? We can look at, um, you know, education, you know, other institutions and structures that also have discursive social control effects on the Black community. Oh, yes, exactly. COVID is, has decimated communities of color not only in uh, cases, not only in death, but as far as jobs. Let me tell you this. The wealth gap in America, uh, richest and poorest families, more than doubled between 1989 and 2016. And of course, in that span, we had the foreclosure crisis, which disproportionately affected communities of color. But in 2016, the net worth of the typical white family was nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family, according to the Brookings Institute. I'm going to say this. Here in the Bay Area, last year, West Oakland opened its first full-service grocery store in 40 years. Think about that. Think about how different your life would be if you grew up in a neighborhood where it was easier to buy drugs and guns than fresh produce. The coronavirus is widening the income inequality gap. In this country, homeownership is the primary source of wealth right now. But that seems so out of reach for so many. Why is that, Debbie? Why are we seeing these issues um, impact communities of color? 
uh, first, I, I just want to say I'm sorry for, you know, what you experienced and what would otherwise have been a celebration and, you know, in Hot Springs. So uh, welcome to being, you know, Black in America uh, when you least expect uh, something to happen. Um, and, and I really uh, honored to be on a panel with Sarah and, and Dr. Williams. So I look forward to the conversation fully uh, and have been reading your works and watching videos. So really looking forward to the conversation. So, you know, the idea of in income inequality, um, the gap has been growing since the 70s. So no matter how many disruptions and, and the slope of the curve, it's actually the gap has been widening. Um, so just to give you some data, right, the poverty rates for the black, the typical black uh, individual is about 20% in America. And for Latina, it's, uh, and Hispanics, it's 17%. And for whites, it's 8%. So just by the uh, statistics at the, um, at the Federal Reserve and the um, Consumer Index, um, you know, that that issue has been longstanding. And yet they would have you believe that, you know, um, uh, the, the blacks are all on welfare and that we're sort of disproportionately represented and that's not the case. Um, the, so when we talk about, I'm going to talk about both the um, income inequality and the wealth gap because there are two pieces there. So on the income, the average household income for a black family is about $40,000 and the average income for a white family is 70,000. So just there you sort of see the, the gap between just the average take home pay on the income. And if you really um, drill down on that, um, you will see that it, it results in the wage gap, right? So blacks are more likely to be in a low wage labor market um, where, um, where the, the schedule, your work schedule is less predictable, your income is more volatile, uh, you have um, lower earnings, and let's say it, speak it, because of the labor market discrimination. And then overall, you know, the, the, uh, the lower um, wage earning creates lower household income, which is gonna be disproportionately impact when you have any shock, whether it be health, whether it be uh, economic, and you probably heard, you know, the, the average, you know, family has about $400, which doesn't even cover the rent. And so, you know, we can talk about the policy that needs to be put in place after that. So that, so that sort of understanding of the, uh, the income inequality, six out of 10 Americans believe, so U.S. adults uh, believe that there is an income inequality gap. So 60% say, yeah, yeah, there, there's a gap. We understand it. We think but it's only the fifth priority, right? So if you say, okay, six out of 10 understand it, but there are five other things that, that if you said, okay, so rank it in, in priority of, um, uh, that we should address in America. So health is above that, uh, crime is above that, guns is above that, education is above that, then income inequality. So those are some steep priorities, right? Those are, I'm, I'm all for, yes, health, uh, especially COVID has represented this disproportionate amount of health um, impact on our community. So um, let, me, let me just um, slide over into the, the racial wealth gap real quickly, because you did touch on that. So wealth, right, being the difference between your total assets and your total liabilities, your debt. How much do I have in assets? Subtract the amount that I have in debt. So the average white family has about $146,000 of wealth, right? So take all my assets, my home, my house, my savings, my stocks, my bonds, and subtract all my debt. I have about 146,000. 
the black family has 3,500. 146,000 versus 3,000. Um, the Latino community, 6,500. So it, it's not, it's the, you know, when you talk about the tenfold, it's not, the, the orders of magnitude is so disparate. And then let me just wrap real quick. Middle class is considered 68,000 to 200,000. That's the middle class, 68 to 200. We're at 5,000. We're, we're not even middle class. And, and I guarantee you, if you go to our community and people you know, are, are living in, in a household, multiple people in the household, I'm renting, I'm kind of check to check, but I'm paying my bills, they probably think they're middle class. We aren't even close in the conversation about middle class. So there's this huge desperate, this disparate um, gap between the wealth, which is then what you can transfer gen intergenerational. So I'll stop there so we can make room for um, the other pieces, but they're all going to intertwine because I haven't even got to the housing. I haven't got to the criminal justice of how that ultimately impacts the wealth of our community and your um, income. Well, I want to ask you uh, another question about that, Debbie, is that, you know, you remember the foreclosure crisis, right? And it's just over a decade ago. And, you know, the one caused by the big banks, you know, predatory mortgages and the big banks were bailed out by the government while homeowners were left to drown. Um, Debbie, wasn't the fallout from those predatory lending pra practices that used to exploit low income homeowners? Yes, that was the subprime mortgage um, asset or excuse me, uh, instruments that they used to exploit. Yeah, it was it was the predicate. Right. And um, ultimately, though, you know, but I think it was um, the Institute for uh, Policy Study said um, white supremacy is the pre-existing condition. The pre-existing condition is the ability to exploit. The systems and policy in place are the, is the ability to exploit. So if it was prime, you could, we could go back. It was um, GI benefits. It was FHA. It was redlining. And so greenlining as the antidote. But all of those were pre-existing conditions predicated on white supremacy. And talking about housing, uh, what is redlining? What, why, and why, you know, the organization that you're with named Greenlining, which is the opposite of that policy and practice that was enforced um, to dis disenfranchise uh, people of color. Tell us uh, what redlining is. Yeah, it was actually a housing mechanism um, or ownership uh, where banks and, um, frankly, the uh, Federal Housing Administration uh, literally took a net map, and if we can put one on here, where they said these are communities where we want to lend, and these red lines, if you pull up these maps, and you could pull it up for every city in the whole United States, were intentionally said we're not going to loan to those communities. And if we did, it was at exorbitant rates, you had to have more down, down payment, and they suppressed the value of the assessment, so you paid more taxes on the home that you owned. And, uh, it, and in fact, sometimes you couldn't even qualify for, for homes. So that's the redlining. And then you can take that same redlining map now and put a COVID-19 map same energy on those. You can put a health map, you can put it in an enviro, environmental map, and you will see same energy. So the, the redlining persists today, right? That, but it, and we're now seeing it overlap across all uh, indicators. Yes, and, and redline neighborhoods are more likely to have low-income black and brown residents. 
like West Oakland, which got its first full-service grocery store in four decades. In the United States, more than 2 million men, women, and children, you know, we put children in cages now, are behind bars. By far the most in the world. Remember, America first. The Prison Policy Initiative estimates that incarceration costs $182 billion a year. Imagine if just a percentage of that was used to help people instead of incarcerating them. But Jason, we, we know that mass incarceration has been a booming business since emancipation. Uh, I mean, sure, the 13th Amendment uh, United States Constitution um, abolished slavery. But during Reconstruction, poor and hungry Black people were snatched off the street and forced to work as unpaid labor slaves in convict leasing programs. Then we had the war on drugs, and it supplied a whole new generation of manpower for prison labor. Today, prisoners work for, I don't know, like a dollar an hour, slave labor. Why is that, Jason? Yeah, and in some cases, less than that for cents, and then being robbed by some of the in-house services, like, you know, just trying to call home to their families or, you know, other types or buying food and such. Um, you know, a honey bun out here is probably a dollar, and in there, it's probably three times the cost. Um, but I would say this is the price of preserving whiteness, frankly. You know, um, you know pre-60s white supremacy lives on through the criminal legal system, you know, White supremacy had to find a new way in which to survive, a new way in which to control black bodies, you know, and other populations whom they deem untouchable, right? Or the sort of enemies of state, if you will. So when you think about the system of mass incarceration, um, it was a great opportunity through which to control these, these populations. And then you connect it back to the open air prison of the ghetto and here you have now these particular programs of carceral and racialized policing. You know, it's the perfect storm, the perfect catastrophe in which to ensure that these populations will be oppressed, repressed, and reduced within the economic markets. You know, redlining plays a role in that. Um, one of my favorite scholars, uh, Keisha Middlemass, and I'll put the link to the book in the chat in a minute, talks about how, you know, all of these policies leads to those cycling in and out of the prisons to being socially disabled. And she contextualizes the body, frankly, as the sort of juncture at which the law is inflicted. She tells us that we should never forget the fact that the body is a, a living organism, that these are beings, right? That people are the victims of these policies. Oh, and, and, and she says, <laughs> I'll add that, she says that, you know, the, the sort of socially disabling of formerly incarcerated people are, this, it's a wantonly political process. And that it is also socially constructed. The fact that we call them felons, we construct them as felons, right? These, we do this as a society. And that we disable them from participating in broader society. We force them not to be able to vote, work, travel, or access certain public spaces, or even, even obtain uh, suitable housing for that matter. Right. So locking up people hasn't reduced the factors, poverty, poor education, and lack of opportunity that lead some people to turn to crime. In a 2016 report on poverty, in the wake of the 2007 to 2009 recession, the Brookings Institution 
examine the negative impact of concentrated poverty. Jason, how linked are poverty and crime? You, the linkage is there because we know that there's a correlation between poverty and crime, although you know it may not cause it per se. The fact is, look, if I'm closed off from other, what they might say, legitimate opportunities, which to survive and, and get by and what you might say mainstream productive society, then I'm going to go ahead and get by through the uh, illegitimate ways or the black market, if you will, I might then go ahead and sell drugs in order to get by. After all, I live in capitalist America, right? I, I, I believe in the American dream just as anybody else who might live in suburban America, right? Who might have access to the means, if you will. So the linkage is there. But also, I think we have to understand how certain criminal justice policies causes crime and causes poverty. So for instance, when we construct people as felons, and then we deny them the ability to get jobs, deny them the ability to travel freely throughout society, and even the ability to effectuate change on their status as felons, because you know, in certain states, they can't even vote. So therefore, how can I even effectuate change for myself, not to mention parenthetically, disproportionately black folk, then the policies are creating crime, because these people then cycle back into pathways of criminality. It's the only way that in which they can survive, frankly. I mean, what else can I do if, I, if I'm legally barred from being able to live um, you know, the legal way, if you will? The converse of this defund the police movement is we need to fund the police department more. They need more bodies on the street. Expanding police departments and putting more people in jails and prisons won't address the underlying issues such as poverty and systemic racism, which is plaguing our society. And that's where I wanna to go to housing. Today, many black people can't afford to live in the country that their ancestors slaved over. Black people are roughly 13% of this country's population, but somehow account for 40%, 40% of the people experiencing homelessness. This is in 2009, according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. In this state, Black people are 6.5% of the population, but account for 30% of the homeless population. In Oakland, Black people are less than 30% of the population, but are 70, 70% of the homeless people. How can that be? In San Francisco, only about Black people represent about 5% of the city's population but represent more than a third of the city's homeless population, 37%. Sarah, we've been talking about housing and policies and homelessness. Just tell us what you're seeing here. Why are so many people, especially people of color, on our streets here where we live? We can't ignore it. We can't drive anywhere or walk anywhere without seeing it. What, what, what are you seeing at, at play here? Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's three, three primary factors, right? Like one is lack of jobs, income, you know, not enough income, um, not enough employment, loss of employment, uh, lack of housing that is affordable for folks who don't make, um, you know, a high income, really. Um, our analysis uh, from a couple of years ago in the Bay Area, we looked at affordability of rental housing across the region, and we found that 5% of neighborhoods, just 5%, and they were all in the exurbs, right, were affordable to a family with two 
earners earning working full time and earning $15 an hour, right? Just 5%. So there's just like no affordable housing. And then the third thing, jobs, um, housing. And then the third thing is, is social supports and mental health and um, just our lack of care, mental health supports, physical health supports for people who don't have enough income, right? So I think that those, it's really those three things. Um, but our housing, you know, racism pervades our housing market. And one place where you see it is in tenure, like literally like who, who rents and who owns, right? So in the Bay Area, you know, seven out of 10 black households rent um, six out of 10 Latinx and Native American households rent, but six out of 10 white households own. So there you have this tremendous racial inequity. I just talked about the lack of housing available to even like full-time workers, the two, two earners. Um, so we've seen this ex escalating rents, displacement crisis, and that is just um, getting more and more precarious with the pandemic. So I think we are really at risk of increasing our homelessness population in the Bay Area and, and nationally, right? So we've been able to stave off an eviction, people call it a potential tsunami, um, but we're kind of, you know, rent, rent or debt is accumulating. There are moratoriums, but they will end, you know, they're scheduled to end um, early next year. Um, so that really threatens to like make the homelessness challenge even worse. Um, right now, you know, in the Bay Area, half of renters lost employment income through the pandemic, right? Half. And this data just came out in California, 59% of Black renters um, and 41% of all renters. So this is not only about Black renters, but all renters feel like they could be evicted in the next two months. Um, so this is, this is a tremendous risk, um, and just threatens to make our challenges even, even worse. So talk a little bit about the Bay Area Equity Atlas and what kind of information is in there. I find it fascinating because, um, by race, location in the Bay Area, um, economic, um, factors, um, just talk about the Atlas and what kind of information, um, people can find within that data. Yeah, absolutely. So the, I should say the Atlas is a partnership between PolicyLink and the San Francisco Foundation and the USC Equity Research Institute. And it is structured, um, the framework is looking at people, place, and power and indicators of the health of the Bay Area across those dimensions, right? So in people, we're looking at educational attainment and access to housing and, and those sorts of things. In place, we're also looking at market rents and um, extreme commuting. And then in power, we're looking at things like um, the potential gains if you had racial equity in income, how much would everybody benefit? How, how much more would you have? Or things like the diversity of electeds. So that's something else at stake in this election, right? Like, who are we, who are we electing? What do the top elected officials look like? Are they representative of the community? Um, so that, that sort of information um, is what you'll find. And you'll find um, not just the data, deeply disaggregated for the nine counties in the Bay Area and the 101 cities, um, but also solutions and strategies and examples of, of what's working. 
We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com pod. We are um, about to talk about race on the ballot and it's in California, the Bay Area. But first, uh, Jason, I'd like you to answer this question from one of our viewers. Do you think the issues with racism within police forces starts with who ends up joining up as in they bring it with them? Or is it developed within the forces in ways that warp new officers attitudes? Yeah, yeah. So it's within the force. So I think it goes back to the culture, right? And that culture is historical, as well as what the institution was designed to do. You know, I often say in my talks that the institution of policing is administered in very intersectional ways, meaning that they operate differently depending on the community, right? Dependent and dependent on the type of citizen with whom they are approaching. So if we're talking about inner city, an inner city community, then we know that the institution is likely to enforce very specific and certain kind of laws within those geographic spaces, right, versus a suburban community. And therefore will likely bring about a certain, the certain kinds of parts of their culture that they wouldn't necessarily do in other communities. And, and that's true, you know, throughout time and space, unfortunately. So for instance, you, you can go into the profession with a good heart and want to do well, but then you find almost immediately that if you want to survive here and be promoted and, 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 and such, then you better get along with the program or else, you know, there will be some consequences. And that's true for also the minority officers, by the way. So, you know, sometimes we think, well, if we diversify the force, you know, bring on some more Blacks and Latinxes and so forth, and you will see a change. Not the case. Research doesn't bear that out. And, and, that, and that's true. I've had um, um, some conversations with uh, officers, um, and, and it always gets to, are you able to cause change within your department? And again, it comes to, well, it's a uh, top-down leadership. And it's very hard to do that if, you know, your chief is not in it. If your sergeant, if your lieutenant, if your captains aren't involved, then then it is really hard for, for officers of any color, of any race to mm-hmm. actually do yeah. that. But even if you have a progressive chief that wants to institute change, if they can't get the people beneath them to come on board, then they can't institute change. So the organization, the, the way in which the institution is designed is just a very problematic. It's a multifaceted issue, unfortunately, right? But I think it's in part due to the kind of um, space, if you will, that we as a society has allowed to this institution to sort of do what it wants to do. It's above reproach. We we have not really governed it the way in which we need to. You know, we're all over politicians. We don't allow other facets of government to sort of be, you know, act as a runaway train. But with this institution, we just have allowed it to do whatever. And that, that's interesting that you said that because um, in this moment, uh, I've been covering a police department uh, locally, Vallejo Police Department, and the police officers union, which has just outsized power, has all of a sudden become vocal and said, we want to lead the effort of reform. Now, how can you lead the effort of reform if you're unwilling to acknowledge why reform is necessary? And that's police behavior. Just a, a little bit, Jason, just about the, the influence that police unions have in this country. 
Yeah, I mean, amazing influence. Uh, for one, they can influence political figures um, through a variety of different ways. And I was just speaking to another a local reporter here the other day about how even in this moment, for instance, um, some some politicians are just utterly afraid, you know, to even you know sign on to some progressive reforms around policing, um, primarily because of the unions, you know. Um, so. I think it's important that we understand how this undercuts we the people's right right to, again, govern our government. And we have to understand how policing is a government entity. Um, and again, looking at this intersectionally, we need to understand too how we just have not allowed Black Americans to have say in how they are policed. And that's a problem. You know, We can't be quick to cite the Civil Rights Acts. We can't be quick to cite you know, um, the 13th, for all of these amendments and changes that we've had throughout time and space that have brought Black Americans into society without also understanding how, except for this one institution, right? We, 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 when it comes to this institution, above reproach, African Americans, your, your citizenship is subjective when it comes to this institution. Exactly. Wow, that's powerful. Uh, and I want to remind our viewers, if you would like to submit a question, use the Q&A module. And this is for, this one is for any panelists who would like to respond. Um, are there any policies that could be enacted that would fix some of these challenges quickly? Um, this person says, I feel like a lot of policies are long-term plays, which are important, but curious about what policy could bring immediate relief. Debbie, Sarah, anything with income inequality or housing or Jason with criminal justice? Well, it, you know, it's it's on it's on the ballot. It literally, I mean, we, we're greenlining. We're a strong advocate for Prop 16, right? Which is sort of the reinstatement of policies that help those who've been otherwise um, excluded. So, you know, there's a big focus on college admissions, but gender is really the big one on the that that you know, women who have not had access to, let's say. If you want to do an academic campus, the faculty representation, you know, over 50% of women are going to college and yet it's less than 30% are fact tenured faculty. If you look at the businesses of the public sector, so Prop 16 is about the public sector, right? So the supplier diversity that we started with, but in addition to the public dollars that are spent are not spent with um, people of color or women. So there's this, this whole dynamic that I don't want to talk about that women are actually on the gender issue is on the ballot as well. So Prop 16, you know, touches all these public funds and an ability to access and to spend accordingly. So so there, there's a, a place where you can actively cast your vote for yes on Prop 16 so that you can realize through your public funds some equity to the rest of the um, to communities that are otherwise excluded. But I, I did want to. I, I did want to add as well in terms of the criminal justice system. I mean, there we had uh, Chase Boudin, um, and there is a movement about prosecution, right? So you have Kim Fox in uh, Cook County, which is Chicago. You have uh, Larry Kasner in Philadelphia. You have um, Rachel Rollins in Boston. Now, the, these are deeply segregated, high criminal, you know, cities, and they have prosecutors who are willing to now uh, bring justice in the terms of uh, police officers and pressing charges and no cash bail. I mean, there is a lot of authority in those um, DAs and the uh, prosecutor, prosecutor, prosecutorial power. And those people were elected 
right? Chesa Boudin in San Francisco was elected. Kim Fox is elected in Cook County. So people have to exercise like this change that they want to seek. And those people are in fact administering policy, right? They have the latitude to do that. So bring it from both ends, right? If the police are going to continue to bring weak uh, evidence or misconduct, then we're just not going to press charges. And so that's, you know, so then you sort of at least are regulating uh, and policing from another angle. Yeah, and that's interesting because uh, Diana Becton, who's the Contra Costa County District Attorney, um, uh, just last month, I believe, said that she would no longer prosecute low-level drug offenses, which is, which is big because that clogs up the criminal justice system. You have people who cannot make bail, and that's a proposition we'll get to. They cannot make bail, and so they're stuck in jail. It becomes punitive. But, Sarah, I wanted to ask you uh, about Proposition 16. It's, you know, out, out here it's being billed as affirmative action. Um, how, how are you seeing this proposition? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really critical because we need race-conscious solutions to our challenges around systemic racism. And right now, with out that. Um, it's very challenging to target the resources to the right communities, right? So, I mean, you can use proxies in terms of income, um, but when you look at housing, for example, Prop 16 would help us to target resources, hopefully we raise through Prop 15, <laughs> um, to address housing challenges in communities of color, right? So I think that it is a critical tool that we're missing right now. Okay, and while we're on propositions, I'll go right to Proposition 17, which is, um, Jason spoke about earlier, just um, um, folks who are denied the right to, to vote. And how important is that? And, and Sarah, I'll start with you there. Um, it restores, Proposition 17 would restore the right voting rights to Californians upon release for prison. What do you think about that one? Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential. We need so much more democracy <laughs> right now, right? And um, it makes no sense to not allow these individuals who are out there contributing to their communities um, to, to not vote. So I think that it makes absolute sense. It seems completely clear cut. <laughs> How about you, Debbie? Because, you know, um, in California, um, Black men are um, incarcerated at a rate that I think that's six or seven times that of white men in this state. What, what are you thinking about Prop 17? Uh, yeah, uh, the, it's the building back in the restorative justice of an individual, right? So if they're going to come back to our community, then they should be able to come back as much as possible as a whole citizen, right? And we should be talking about, you know, hope and healing, right? And if and if you're coming back to the community and you're so disenfranchised to the point, you know, you can't vote, you can't get a job, you can't live with your mom who might be otherwise um, in, you know, uh, subsidized housing, you can't, then you are, in fact, we are not allowing you then the rest restoration, you have done your crime. You have you have paid the penalty. What is the, the the idea that you would persist as a criminal after the fact is just is nonsensical. So I think you know, it, and the Prop 16, Prop 17 gets to that a bit of restoring you back to your full citizenship. 
And Jason, I wanted to ask you, this country says, if you do the crime, you got to do the time. But also this country says that once you do the time, any time, then you're labeled as this, this outcast society. Talk about how that impacts your your life from now on. Like you've done, you paid your debt to society, but society won't let you back in. Yeah, and I just want to say too, let's understand while Black males in particular are disproportionately mass incarcerated, they are also disproportionately wrongfully convicted. So we want to think about that in terms of denying people their right to vote. I wish states would allow people behind bars to actually vote. I believe two states do allow that. I want to say Maine and Vermont. Um, Particularly when you think about the vast inhumanities that people actually face in prison. You know, in my state, the only women's prison that we have, uh, women face issues such as sexual assault, um, you know, the denial of medical care, you name it. You can go to the DOJ report. I love citing DOJ reports because you get all of the, everything in those DOJ reports. But I wish that they could vote because, again, voting allows you to effectuate change in your status, right, and who you are and how you matriculate in society. But yes, getting to your question, um, when you do when you go to prison and come out, yes, the 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 we're told that the person has done their time, they're now back outside and they should be restored as, as a human being, as an American citizen. And yet we find oftentimes that they are not. And even in instances when they have been given the right to vote again, you're still faced with that status, that overarching status that again. Disallows you from being able to get certain jobs, disallows you from being able to get certain um, housing opportunities and such that you're socially disabled. And so you're, you're, you're sort of downgraded to a lower quality of life. So it's like, OK, I can vote, but what's what's the purpose? What's the purpose? It's learned hopelessness and helplessness. And it's de- and it's democratically right. It's democratically bestowed onto these people who, who have done their time, have paid their debt to society. It's unbelievable. I want to go to another question. Um, This one's from Ken. And he says, uh, one of the ballot initiatives has to do with bail. And that's Prop 25, Um, Sarah and Debbie. The bail project has said that the initiative has fundamental flaws and urges a no vote. What should someone who voted no say to legislators who've passed SB 10? That's interesting because Prop 25 um, is something that I even discussed with a colleague today. And, and to be clear, this is the proposition that would uh, replace the cash bill system with a pretrial system that could expand the size and scope of probation. So, yeah, Debbie, let's start with you. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think on 25, uh, is this the one that has the algorithmic um, calculus for? Mm-hmm. So from greenlining, we see um, the algorithmic bias that happens in the data, mm. that the source data is biased, in fact, so you will not actually realize the equity you're trying to pursue in saying that it's, you know, race neutral, colorblind, age neutral, what have you. So. So we actually think it's flawed in that the the methodology is flawed. Um, I would tend to agree, Sarah. What what are your what is your feelings about that? Um, you know, obviously um, we know that cash bail um, has its issues, and Jason, I'll get to, to ask you about that in a second. But Sarah, what are, what are you feeling with this proposition, with the algorithmic um, determination, the, the bias that could come from it? 
Yeah, no, similarly, we PolicyLink puts out a California voter guide and we recommended no on 25 um, because of this um, potential to reinscribe racial bias in the system and expand, um, you know, basically the carceral system more. Um, so, you know, we're we're for getting rid of ca cash bail, but do not think that this is the this is not a solution. Uh, and and, and um, Jason, I want to kick it to you that this idea of cash bail and impact it has on particularly communities of color that don't have this money to pay for these bail. Exactly. I mean, and even in my own research, mothers have spoken about giving up rent money. Okay, um, not being able to provide for their younger children because they're afraid of what's happening to their older children who's locked up in the county. Okay, and again, disproportionately happening to families of color and to single mothers of color, by the way. So it's gendered as well. But in, in regards to this prop here, we want to think about too how this again expands the carceral system into the community and how it's a bit more demoralizing and inhumane because imagine being freed but in my home. So I'm incarcerated but at home and you know I'm free, I can see out the window but I I can't leave outside the house. And by the way, you know, the state is writing checks to which either private company is making money off the use of those bracelets. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So the commodification again, you know, by, a, by another name of black and brown bodies. Yes. And that point where you made the honey buns, even the phone calls home um, that taxes people incarcerated their families. It, it's happened with the immigration system as well, but I want to try to get to another question before uh, we go. Um, uh, this comes from Danielle, and she says, I have a few friends who have been felons or could not afford bail whose misdemeanors would potentially put them in jail. They are not aware of these issues and will not vote. Here, here's where it gets good. Their main concern is guns and will vote Republican, if anything, to preserve that among everything else. What can I say to them? Is the president even compatible with any of the above or would they stand to lose these benefits if they voted for him on a whole? I think the question is, um, is to me, it rises, why are guns so damn important for Republicans? Why is it the Second Amendment that we're afraid that you're going to um, take our guns? And I'm saying that from a place where I've been researching for the last week on the prevalence of guns in communities where there are no gun stores in Oakland, yet and still Oakland is dealing with rising homicides right now. Where do the guns come from? I, I, Jason, you're shaking your head. <laughs> what is your response to that about making this about guns? Essentially? Yeah, I think I think, well, the Second Amendment uh, has always been a racialized discussion. Right. And I think the discourses within this sort of racialized context has been heightened given what happened over the summer in particular. And now we got the far left, as they're saying, and the far right, right? This sort of battle that's happening in the streets. And so the, the right is, you know, look, they're taking charge on that and they're trying to gain additional points by racializing it some more. Um, it's typical Republican speaking points, if you ask me. Um, and it's unfortunate that folks are falling for that. Another question. Uh, Mrs. Debbie and Sarah, um, for both of you, really, how do you weed out that bias from algorithms? Who writes them, or is it giving more discretion to judges, uh, which carries its own risk of bias? And that's actually really smart because 
the whole criminal system as a whole um, is impacted by systemic racism. But these <laughs> these um, algorithms is the answer, Debbie or Sarah, is it to not use the algorithms or or what? How can we take the bias out of them? Yeah, I, I so I tend to like want to work upstream. Um, first, you know, uh, what are the charges, right? In terms of uh, now, you know, shoplifting for value of $300 is con considered a felony or um, charges, you know, or shoplifting for $1,200 in the state of Washington is con considered a felony. So when you, so let's get upstream from um, where the actual felony and then the adjudication happens. I think um, the, the attempt to the reverse of the algorithm was mandated sentencing, and that was catastrophic. And three strikes, and that was catastrophic. So the fact that they, we tried to prescribe a way to uh, sentence or otherwise, um, and now to do the algorithm, uh, I, it, I think is still um, it, working down the wrong path. Right. So we're saying, oh, keep putting people in jail. We just want a different math of how much time they can serve. So I would rather work on can we stop putting people in jail? Can we create a community where you're housed? Can we create a community where you're educated? And then we will have, you know, you, you can be 17, 18 and make a mistake, you know, and and for those who who do horrific crimes. OK, but can we just stop having sort of this mass criminalization and then you can sort of talk about the algorithms and if you're if you were going to you know twist my arm and say then i would want people of color to be assisting in writing those algorithms right i mean the first time we got you know the cell phones they didn't recognize black people and asian people because they couldn't see the pigmentation or the the eyes right because you didn't have those people in the room when you developed the product so same thing, if you're going to at least have algorithms, then at least have us in the room saying, you know, uh, no, you know, uh, an 18 year old who has caught shoplifting, it should not be a felony. And the algorithms should say that. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And shouldn't go to jail. Uh, Sarah, I want to pose this question to you. Is it better to get rid of rid of the corrupt bail system and work on improving the algorithm? Um, this questioner says, I think there was a bill passed in 2018 or 2019 that requires all algorithms to be evaluated as to bias every three years. What's your response to that? I mean, I think it it puts a lot of faith in algorithms which have been showing themselves to be um, racist. So I think that I would want to know that there is a way to engage people in the design of them, to regulate them, to have transparency. You know, I think I, I want to see that there are non-biased algorithms before saying yes to that one. We're going to wrap up soon, but I want to pose a question to each of you and, you know, keep it to a minute. Uh, the question is, what does America look like if the president wins? And what will America look like if Joe Biden wins? I'm going to start with you, Jason. Well... If, 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 if 45 wins, um, I see COVID expanding far beyond that which we could ever imagine, okay? Um, I see criminal justice issues also expanding, worsening perhaps, 
Um, if we if we've been paying attention, more and more unions are coming out in support of um, Trump, and that I think is a problem. Again, it takes away from the people's ability to hold that institution accountable, and it again lessens the rights and voices of Black Americans and other communities affected by law, uh, law enforcement. Um, so those are my key concerns with him. Um, now, if Biden wins, however, I see the flip side. I do think I do believe that issues around criminal justice will be addressed. There are some issues that I believe that we, we need to push them on a little bit so that their agenda can become a little bit more progressive. Um, but I do think that there would be a difference there as well as with COVID. So I do see a much better future as well as for students, for education. How about you, Sarah? What, what, what are you seeing if the president wins and if Biden wins? Yeah, I mean, I think about it in terms of dark and light. I mean, I think that if the president wins, it's, you know, continued darkness on our democracy um, and a continued fraying of our social contract, right? I mean, we're so splintered under this president and the sort of disintegration of our public discourse and ability to even talk about things. So versus I think that if Biden is elected, I think it's about renewing the social contract, um, making progress on deep-seated issues, um, protecting people. I think we'll definitely get more support for people. Um, so dark and light. Oh, wow. Debbie. <laughs> so I think it's uh, solidarity. I think this, if, if 45 wins again, I think there's solidarity. Uh, I think there's continued protest, but solidarity within a wider range. And then I think if, if there's a Biden-Harris victory, then I think there's solidarity to hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. And so on both sides, there's solidarity. But I do think in the context of is it solidarity in darkness or is it solidarity in light? Right. I will say this. If the president wins... Um, the social unrest that we have seen in the streets this summer, that's every day. That Portland is this entire country. If Biden-Harris win, um, I think we, I think there's going to be people who think that we're back to this level of normalcy, that everything is fine. We're back to where we were. And I want to thank my panelists for showing that America is troubled before COVID, it will be after COVID, unless we do something and push our elected officials to do more. I want to thank you, Debbie, Sarah, and Jason. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you to Otis Taylor and the panelists for this discussion, to Christina Nori, who produced the event, to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and to you for listening. <laughs>